Good morning. Well, I'm thinking about today's text. It occurred to me that, uh, you know, I would bet that many of us, if not most of us, if we were really honest about it, we love a good revenge story, right? Where there's a character of uh, dubious actions, and we love it when revenge falls on that one. I was thinking about the uh, popular show Downton Abbey that ran for about six seasons, and the, the beautiful, lovely, sweet-as-an-angel Anna was at one point sexually assaulted by the evil Mr. Green. And we just couldn't believe it. It was a, a gripping part of the storyline. And ultimately, we learned that somebody in London pushed the evil Mr. Green in front of an oncoming vehicle and it took his life and we go, yes! Because we like that revenge. Well, Jesus speaks into that today in a message I call, How Many Times? This is sermon number six in the Jesus Sermon Series presented to us by His disciple Matthew in chapter 17 and 18 of His Gospel. And last week we took a close look at Jesus' imperative to pursue those who are embracing sin, moving away from God, moving away from life and from the church community. Those trying to find life in corrupt human ways and human solutions and human pursuits. Jesus says, pursue them, appeal, plead, warn them to seek repentance and restoration. It's a matter of life and death, and it's a matter of vitality for the church community. Today we ask the question, what are the limits of forgiveness? You know, when somebody is struggling in a cycle of sin, sin, repentance, forgiveness, restoration, sin, repentance, forgiveness, restoration, wash, rinse, repeat over and over again, what do we do with that? Is there a point at which we say, enough is enough, we're done with you? And we're done with these issues. Whether it's individually or as a church community. Is there a point? There must be, right? Well, that's the question that the Apostle Peter asks of Jesus today. And in response, Jesus presents a drama in three scenes. Scene one, I call abundant grace. Scene two, I call gross injustice. And scene three, stunning judgment. Once again, Jesus turns everything upside down. It's a, it's a powerful story. It's yet another story where, where Jesus draws us in. He engages us in the story, and we resonate, we, we resonate and we agree, and then He pulls the rug out from under us, and He changes everything, convicting us deeply as He does so. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, it's such a privilege to gather together, to stop, to be still, to attend to Your Word together. Father, Your Word, Your truth, Your Scriptures have the ability to transform us, to shape us, to refresh us, and we pray that You would be pleased to do that today. Please speak to us. We need You, we love You, we praise You, and we thank You in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So we pick it up in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21, where Matthew says this, 
Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Jesus now takes Peter and the disciples into a drama in three scenes, and he says this in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. So Peter comes and he suggests seven times. Seems like a good number. Seems fairly generous. And I think what he's doing is that he's thinking of a motif repeated in the writings of the prophet Amos. And this, this uh, motif of Amos has shaped a good deal of Israel's thinking where they kind of felt like, okay, you forgive three times, but then the fourth, you don't do so. It's because Amos says this in kind of poetic form many times, bringing the word of God. He says, for three transgressions of Damascus, for instance, he cites many different peoples, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. In other words, I will forgive their transgressions three times, but not the fourth. And so Israel rather adopted this as the the social standard, if you will, the relational standard in terms of how many times you forgive. So Peter here thinks he's being pretty generous. He's doubling the exceptions, the exemptions from three to six, and then for good measure, he's adding one more. He's adding a seventh. If I forgive seven times, that's pretty lavish. But Jesus, he's not so impressed. He says, Peter, you're not even close. And then using an idiom which suggests endless repetition, and it's, un, it's a little unclear whether the phrase is 70 times 7 or 77. It doesn't really matter because both are idioms that represent endless forgiveness in response to true repentance. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you never give up on anyone. You don't give up on anyone. And then I believe, referring back to Genesis 4, Jesus makes a statement that is profound for the disciples then and for us today. Jesus, I think, is thinking of the four times great-grandson of Cain, from the great story of Cain and Abel that we all know. And he's referring to a man named Lamech. And Lamech is a man who, in Genesis 4, boasts to his wives that he slays a man for having struck him and wounded him. And he crows, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So Jesus now takes this unbridled evil, and he turns it on its head saying, that is not the way of the kingdom of God. While seven may seem generous, God is far more so, and you will be too. My disciples, my friends, my followers, the ones I save, you will be much more generous. And so then Jesus launches into this drama. And in the first chapter, he says the kingdom of heaven looks like this. We've got two characters. 
Got a king, got a servant. Now, a king, of course, in those days had absolute rule. He was the final arbiter of all things social, political, relational, uh, in terms of justice and the law and whatnot. Absolute rule. And the servant, of course, is one who is at the absolute mercy of the king. So the servant really has no standing before the king. He has no legal rights, no guaranteed rights. There are no, no laws, no courts, no lawyers to protect him should there be injustice. But the king desires to settle his accounts, which of course is Jesus' metaphor for the end of all things. In this king, we see God. And this is that, that end event in which all accounts are settled. So the king, one by one, is calling to him those who owe him something to settle the score for all credits and all debits. And this is particularly notable for this servant because he owes 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents was an astronomical sum. No way he's paying this back. It's a few gazillions by today's values. Just gazillions, right? Maybe? Maybe I made that up. I don't know. But the point is, this is a stunning amount. This man knows. Hey, Ted, would you look into that? There's our math guy. We, are there gazillions? I wonder how many zeros are on those gazillions. Yeah? Okay. So it's beyond human reason that this servant has any chance of paying back this enormous debt. And that's Jesus' point here. It's an unpayable debt. The servant simply can't do it. And so the king orders the only price that can even begin to hint at the value of the debt, the lives of the man, his family, and all his belongings sold, and then whatever debt can be paid, portion of the debt can be paid from that, done so, but even then it's hopeless that that price will come anywhere near being fulfilled. Servant's response, he begs for mercy. Falls to his feet in submission, even worship, and he appeals for delay. Now, maybe he's motivated by genuine contrition. Perhaps he just doesn't get it. Perhaps he just can't comprehend how enormous this really is. But he makes a promise he can't possibly keep, and it's a rather ludicrous moment. In our desperation, we, we sometimes can say some ridiculous things too, can't we? Out of desperation. Now, at this moment if we're not identifying with this man, if we're not stepping into his sandals, then we're missing something here. We're missing the essence of this text. Because you notice the man is not named here. We don't get a specific name like Zacchaeus and some others. And when that happens, it's an invitation to step into that character. We are that character. He is us. We each carry an enormous unpayable debt, a debt created by our sin. Our credit cards, our loans, our bills may be paid up in current, but the debt of our sin never will be if left to us. We simply don't have the time. We don't have the resources. We don't have the capability. And even our most treasured and valued possessions cannot approach the debt we owe God. Remarkable note here is notice how our debts have deep and broad impact. 
Notice that the king demanded not just that the man be sold, but that his wife and his children and all his possessions. It's because our sin impacts our families. It impacts our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. And our individualistic world claims it's all about us. It's all about your happiness. It's all about your contentment. It's all about your value and how you want to find that in the world. But our sin and the debt it creates has a profound impact on all those around us and those we hold dear. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Can we do anything? Well, the man does the only thing he can do. He falls and he pleads. He implores. It's an idea of giving reverence here. He begs his master to have patience and he humbles himself. And likewise, we bow down, don't we? Before our master. We worship. We beg forgiveness of our hopeless debt. But unlike the man, we abandon all thoughts or claims that we can repay. And the king's response? The master has mercy. It's beautiful. He extends pity and forgiveness of the entire debt. I mean, this, this story is just saturated in the gospel. And note that the master requires nothing of his servant beforehand. His humility, his confession, his plea are enough. The king asks for no performance to prove the man worthy and sincere. No down payment is needed. You know, in other words, all right, let's, let's put you on a payment schedule. You make some payments, pay some back, and if you're sincere, then maybe I'll consider waiving the rest of the debt. No, the king's mercy and compassion are free and abundant. You see, that's the way of the kingdom of heaven. Free and abundant mercy. Free and abundant forgiveness. As with the king, so with Jesus. Because in Jesus, where there is repentance, there is forgiveness. You know, when you take out a mortgage and... Looking around, I'm imagining many of you have at one time or another. When you take out a mortgage, it can be a really rough process, right? I mean, those underwriters, they can put you through the ringer. They examine all your documents. They do all kinds of credit checks. They make you account for every dollar. They question everything. Your salary, how long you've been working there, how much do you have in the bank, where'd you get it, how did you get it? Does it all really belong to you? Did you pay off this debt? Where'd you get the money? You bought an ice cream. Where'd you get the money for that? You have to pay it back. What kind of underwear do you have? Are your socks clean? Do you wash behind your ears? And if all is good, okay, maybe we'll give you a loan. Come back in a week or so. We'll let you know. Well, that's all well and fine. We've come to expect that. But you know what? That's not how Jesus works. Jesus to whom we owe an enormous debt. When we repent, He sweeps it all aside. And I suspect that if somehow, some way, we could see the enormity of our sin and truly understand its damage, you know, it's all piled up in one place, I think we'd collapse to our knees, crushed by the enormity of it and the resulting debt. But in Jesus... When there is repentance, there is free and full forgiveness. So our servant friend has received enormous grace and mercy. His debts have been forgiven. 
requiring nothing of him in order to merit, because no merit was possible. However, here's when the other shoe drops, there are some expectations and responsibilities in the wake of this grace. The first, that the man's experience would transform his heart. That that kind of abundant forgiveness would do something internally in this man and in us. And out of a transformed heart would be a transformed way of living. So we continue on with Jesus' story in verse 28. He says, But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Sadly, we see the servant's true motivation and his true character. His unconverted soul is revealed. This fellow servant who owes him far left, though it's not an insignificant amount, but obviously it's far, far less. First, the first servant goes and demands payment under the threat of death. Doesn't, doesn't even give him an opportunity to reply. Grabs him around the neck and says, pay up. Pay what you owe. And threatens death before he even gets a response. And so the servant in, death, in debt also falls down and pleads. He pledges to repay his much more manageable amount, but is refused and imprisoned. And it's shocking, isn't it? This disturbs every fiber of fairness and justice in us. How can this possibly be? He can't get away with this. And we have to ask the question, where does that come from? Where does that sense come from in us? It, becomes, it comes because we are made in the image of God. So naturally, when we see this kind of injustice, especially in light of what the man has been forgiven, we recoil. And it raises the question then of what forgiveness demands. And the fact is, Jesus' forgiveness asks something of us. It's a simple concept, but it's a very difficult reality. This parable seeks to evoke in us such amazement by grace that we are transformed into new people. And it should produce such amazement that we say, Lord, change me. By your Holy Spirit's presence in me, change me from the inside out. I know I can't do it on my own. I want that. I want that kind of generosity. I want that kind of spirit in me. And that's why you've given me the Holy Spirit to be my helper. So Lord, would you transform me? That's why David in Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Don't forget what God has done. The enormity of what you have been forgiven. The huge debt that was yours that has now been swept away. David lands it on the reality, the Lord who forgives all your iniquity. And so the great forgiveness and immense debt from which we've been released comes with a great expectation that we forget not and that we turn and become people of forgiveness. Realizing that we can't do it on our own. And when we deal with difficult people in our lives, we remember that we are called 
to recall the great forgiveness that we have from God. There's no possible debt that we hold against somebody else that could even begin to measure the magnitude of ours against God. Think about it. Right now. Of what have you been forgiven? And the corollary question, who are you not forgiven? Important questions for us to ask. The great forgiveness and immense debt from which we've been released demands that we in turn become people of forgiveness. In scene three now, in this drama, Jesus lowers the boom. We find that the results of not becoming people of forgiveness are severe. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the man's fellow servants can't believe it. Matthew tells us literally they're grieved, they're hurt, they're sorrowful, and we're reminded that, yeah, people close to us perpetrate such evil and lack of compassion and forgiveness. It hurts, doesn't it? So these fellow servants are shocked and they report the gross injustice leading to the core of the scene where the king is just beside himself at the servant's lack of compassion, at the servant's wickedness. And he explodes in anger. Like the servant, we've been forgiven so very much beyond calculation. How can we not then proceed to forgive all who are in debt to us in any way? And the results when we refuse, the unmerciful servants land where they belong, separated from the master. Until our debt is paid. In other words, never. Because we can't. Even as a free man, the servant had no chance, and now he's in jail, so his odds have increased from absurd to ludicrous. And in the end, no way. Sobering blow. And Jesus says, such is the end of every one of you if you do not forgive from your heart. So enter into and know the depths of what we've been forgiven. We need to consider the harm that we've caused, the people we've betrayed, the, the hurt we have dished out, the ways in which we have undermined people. We need to consider our disobedience when we thought we knew better than God. But we just willfully pursued something knowing it was not His desire, but we were going to go for it anyway. We need to consider our lies, our gossip, our criticism, our lust, our jealousy, our anger, our control. We've been forgiven an enormity. How can we not then turn and forgive the comparatively small offenses of our brothers. You see, Jesus absolutely expects that His forgiveness will transform us into forgiving people. 
And so God's forgiveness is not dependent upon our forgiving others, but must be followed by it. If we will not forgive, either we just don't really get it, or perhaps the authenticity of our repentance must be called into question. If we will not forgive, Jesus warns, the consequences are great. It's because forgiveness is costly. It costs Jesus everything. It costs Him His rights, His privileges, His, His life in the presence of the living God. It costs Him the measure of the punishment reserved for every one of us, consolidated and put upon Him. And then the ultimate blow, that separation from the living God when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's when Jesus tasted the very depths of hell on our behalf. So that's how and why God can require unlimited forgiveness from us. It's because He's given infinite forgiveness to us. In 1969, the Beatles sang what became much the, one of the anthems of my generation. They sang, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. I'm not even sure what that means. But Jesus says the forgiveness you have received is the forgiveness you give to others. So let's consider, whom have we not forgiven? What hidden corner of our hearts harbors resentment, anger, desire for revenge? Why? Onto what are we holding? The Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Galatian church, he says, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So does your grudge give you superiority, perhaps even control over someone? Do we use our grudges, our refusal to forgive as a lever? Perhaps we're not willing to pay the cost. You know, forgiveness is costly, isn't it? When we forgive, it costs us something. It's not free. We give up something. We give up perhaps rights to retribution, perhaps we give up our pride, perhaps we give up our desire for revenge, superiority, saving face, maybe even our reputation. I have a friend who for a time sought, and maybe he still does, still seeks to discredit my reputation. He, he holds something against me, and ironically, I don't even know what it is. I'd like to know what it is, so I can own it and confess he won't talk to me. And it hurts. And sometimes I face more than a little temptation to just shred him personally or in the community. Perhaps on social media. Man, what a wicked tool social media can be. But the cross stops me. Because when I look at the cross, I'm reminded of how weak, and sinful, rebellious I am. And my sin piles high at the cross. And it stops me cold in my tracks. 
So even if that one has not confessed, not asked for pardon, are you willing? If that one were to come to you and confess, would we let go of the case against them? Imagine what it might do if you were to pursue Jesus in this way. Jesus, soften me. Transform my heart. I, I can't do it on my own. Set me free so that I can truly say, Father, forgive them. And give me what I need to forgive them as well. Because God can require unlimited forgiveness from us because He's given infinite forgiveness to us. There's no human being who's not amassed an unpayable debt to God. And if you find yourself this morning resisting this truth, resisting this reality in your internal world, you're either listening to Satan or the world or both. Or perhaps you're listening to your own fears. You know, if I really acknowledge my sin, it might just be too great for me to bear. If I really acknowledge my sin and people know about it, my reputation might be gone. I'll never be accepted or welcomed in decent company again. I'll be crushed inside. My sin is so great, so powerful, that if I acknowledge it and I own it and I face up to it, it's going to be crushing. What's holding you back? Are you thinking I can't acknowledge it? I must push it to the background and ignore it. I have to live in denial. Well, the day is coming... When the great king will call all the debts. He'll call us to settle everything. Imagine this. Think about our, our nation's $20 trillion debt. Imagine if that was called due all at once. It would absolutely cripple our economy. In fact, it would cripple the world economy. It would send the world into absolute chaos. You know, if you took that $20 trillion in $1 bills and you stacked them up, it would reach 1.3 million miles. To the moon and back, six times. It's unimaginable. Virtually inconceivable, yet our debt to God is even greater. And on that day... When it is called, will you go off to prison, separated from God, never able to repay because you're trying to do it yourself? Or will you point to Jesus and say, here is my Savior. Here's the one who paid my debt. He is my Lord. Here's the one who ransomed me. Swept aside my awful sin, my merciful and gracious King has paid in full. How great is that? How great is that? 